the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. Normally I'm in studio with Lebohang Madisha, but she is off studying very hard, focusing on science in a very different way. So I am joined here by our producer, Bridget Lepere. How are you doing? Good, thanks. It's nice to have you in studio with us today. And today we are talking about something from the brain of Elon Musk. Are you a big Elon Musk fan? Not really, but I'm a fan of his innovations. <laughs> yeah, he's a very complex, controversial character. Uh, if you don't know, Elon um, is behind companies like Tesla Motors, the electric vehicles. He's behind um, the rockets from SpaceX. And um, he has another company, the Boring Company, if you believe it or not. And if you're a big Musk fan, you probably already know what I'm about to say next. Their Hyperloop system is under construction officially and the first sort of circuit will be unveiled in Los Angeles in just over one month in December. And the Hyperloop is a high-speed land-based loop transport system. It uses a thrust force based on electromagnetism, which could, in theory, propel ports forward in a vacuum-sealed steel tunnel at speeds up to 1,200 kilometers per hour. In theory. In theory, yes. And Musk said that this test tunnel has a top speed of up to 250 kilometers per hour. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, you wouldn't put a human in something that can go over a thousand k's an hour. So that's just theoretically yes. what it could do. Um, it's good that they don't. I've got to say, two fifty is already plenty enough for me, and I quite like speed. Mm, and I can hear my ears ringing. <laughs> yeah. But I, listen, I need. I really want to get across the country quickly, but I don't need go that quickly yeah (laughs) it's fine i can have a nap on the plane to cape town uh so if you haven't seen the photos basically we're talking about something that looks like a train system in a tunnel but the difference is it doesn't have wheels so it travels underground so it would lessen the burden on the road and the railroad infrastructure and it has a very light carbon footprint which is great and one of the big reasons why we're talking about it today Yes, and it is very exciting indeed. It reminds me of, of a concept car which I saw recently on mm-hmm. uh, social media. But this um, this concept video was done in 2013. So it was a concept that was actually created for VW in 2011. So this video is meant to reflect the future of vehicles and how we could possibly travel in the future. And it featured a tubular two-seater zero emissions vehicle which hovered above the ground and traveled along electromagnetic road networks. Can you believe it? That for me is one of those perfect middle grounds of something that sounds a little bit too ridiculous and futuristic, but at the same time, completely realistic actually every time you said something i want to contradict it but it makes sense hovering vacuums magnets these things make sense why not use them to create a vehicle yeah and it it seems like that that idea isn't too far-fetched either because if we are already talking about this hyperloop technology now what could stop us from creating a, a hovering vehicle someday okay so, like you said, it's not just this one hyperloop. There are, um, there have been other concepts over the years. There's actually been an American physicist and inventor called Robert H. Goddard, who is best known as the founding father of modern rocketry. He built the world's first liquid fuel rocket in 1926. But the reason why I'm mentioning him is Goddard was also one of the first to recognize the scientific potential of missiles and space travel. So he is seen as the predecessor of the Hyperloop or VAC train, so vacuum train. Um, He's sort of seen as the godfather, the grandfather of this concept, um, which he then developed in 
back in the the 20th century as i said yeah and this idea of using low pressure as part of the transporting system has a very long history for instance the crystal palace pneumatic railway used air pressure to push a wagon uphill and a vacuum uh, pardon me to drag it back down way back in the victorian south south london in 1864 okay so clearly these things have been around other similar systems have been used for other things i believe so there are these concepts but as of yet we'll still have to see what exactly happens with elon musk and his hyperloop i know they're saying they're going to do the first tests um in december I don't know, Bridget. There are lots of people who are skeptical of this system, even myself, even though it makes sense. Just because the raw science works doesn't mean it's going to be something that's affordable, adoptable, you know, flexible. Or even healthy. Exactly. Yeah. So that is why today on the show, we unfortunately do not have Elon Musk with us. Unfortunately. Very sadly. <laughs> but we do have some very clever people who can help us along to explain how it all works, including a physicist with whom we will be talking about magnets and the idea of using them and vacuums for transport. Then we also have unscience, where we find out how birds are using reverse psychology we find out whether they have selfish ambitions of helping others or are they you know are these ambitions really just for helping themselves then later on in the show we go back to the topic of transport specifically now we're not talking about the future or the hyperloop but we're looking at very much the transport that you and i use every day whether that's uber minibus taxis private cars buses we really wanted to get to the bottom of how a thing how are these things designed as a transport system in a city does it make sense who does it provide and who is it made for? We want to find out all of that later on in the show. But after the break, we will start with our science news the way we always do. If you are a huge Elon Musk fan and you're so excited that we're talking about this, why don't you hit us up on social media? It's Vow FM on Facebook and on Twitter. You can also drop us a WhatsApp. I would love to hear a voice note from you about whether you think this whole Hyperloop thing is a good idea. And then the podcast, oh, that WhatsApp line, I should probably give you the number. It's 084-078-4912. And the podcast is up on iTunes and vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. But let's get into the news with Bridget after this. This week's Science Headline. So, Bridget, what do you have for us in in, uh, your science story? Well, this week we are looking at why science is probing hibernation to treat illness and conserve energy while helping humans to get to Mars. Okay. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful, but uh, over the weekend, a group of researchers from various streams of science attended the, the American Physiological Society Comparative Physiology Symposium in New Orleans, where they discuss what the potential benefits of hibernation have on the body and what its related processes could have in aiding human health in, during spaceflight. Okay, so we're sending, we're not planning to send ice bears or bears into space who hibernate anyway. So I'm very interested to find out how this is supposed to um, affect uh, the human body. And I've got to say, just as somebody who loves movies, I wonder if these scientists watch the movie Passenger, where, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a sci-fi movie where the person basically sleeps, I think, for a year and then wakes up on a distant planet. So maybe they watch that movie. Well, I don't think they had enough time to watch the movie they were busy doing the studies <laughs> well it, it is said that the synthetic um, topa which um, which is actually hibernation um, could protect astronauts from space related health hazards and simultaneously reduce demands on spacecraft uh, mass volume and power capacities Okay, so are you saying this this topa that you mentioned, it's basically like a synthetic hibernation pod, so you're making them fall asleep. Am I understanding this correctly? No, it's not a pod 
what it is is a state like of lifelessness oh, as okay. you had mentioned uh, well i do mention this uh, later in in in, the, in my story but um it it's something that gets you into a sleep or sort of lifelessness state and yeah okay so induced coma similar vibes yeah <laughs> okay so why have they looked specifically at this as a solution well in order to survive during a, a period of scarce resources such as food water and low temperature some animals enter hibernation or topa uh, which have already uh, explained and this reduces their normal metabolism to low levels for days or weeks at a time these periods allow an animal's body uh, temperature to fall just above its surrounding air temperature thus conserving their energy okay now what makes this thought provoking is that humans do not naturally undergo topa hey if you see some students on a saturday morning <laughs> when they sleep till 2 p.m bridget we shall speak again <laughs> <laughs> they are literally in a stupor, right? <laughs> Therefore, scientists are discussing um, d uh, this inducing of synthetic topa in certain situations, which includes spaceflight. Okay, I, I actually find this really fascinating. It makes so much sense. Sure, our human bodies are normally made for that, but why not look at other animals and try to understand if it's an option? What have they found out so far? Well, um, just to correct you there, uh, Elna, humans don't naturally go into topa. So um, animals can hibernate naturally, but then in humans it needs to be induced because we, we are not created uh, for hibernation, right? So the uh, symposium uh, co-chair, Dr. Hannah Carey from the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine, studied hibernation in mammals and she and her team investigated how these animals are able to safely lower their body temperature and metabolism for extended periods of time. However, this may, um, this may also aid scientists to treat people who have experienced traumatic medical events such as a stroke, cardiac arrest and severe blood loss. They discovered that due to the lack of blood flow, animals use topa and have a natural resistance to various injuries and even resistance to radiation injury and such resistance proves beneficials, beneficial pardon me, for humans who may want to venture into deep space. While it sounds practical, it does sound very dangerous, doesn't it? I mean, is this good for the human body? Well, that's a, um, a, a, a good question to ask. So, um, Kerry discussed why um, the use of synthetic topa based on the bio biology of natural hibernators, uh, which is preferable preferable as opposed to current medical practices that use hypothermia based methods to treat trauma patients she also discussed how hibernation hibernation research can identify how to create to create the synthetic topa for space travel its similarities and differences to sleep and its benefits to to astronauts as well so topa has been fraught with controversy though as the two states whether a hibernation of or, or, or sleep they appear to be intimately linked because of the neuronal connections that they share and dr vladskelov yeah it's a Russian name. Yes, it's a Russian name. Uh, let me start all over again. I don't really want to butcher his name because I did really practice this. So his name is Vladislav Vyaskovsky from the University of Oxford in the UK. He suggested that the lack of available food sources may cause mammals to conserve energy and lower their body temperature. And these are two hallmark characteristics of topa. However, less is known about the specific fasting-related signals which initiate entry into topa. One of my concerns about this, however, especially on a space flight, would be if everybody's sleeping, uh, how do you monitor, how do you intervene? It does seem dangerous to me that if something goes wrong, uh, 
then there's nobody awake to do anything and you might lose not not just goes wrong with the humans but with the spacecraft yes so there is a lot of risk here but it sounds like a very interesting thing to explore yeah and it's very sad because it's only people who are on earth who'd be able to operate that spacecraft and if there's something that they can't work on alas (laughs) (laughs) so Bridget I also look to the stars uh, with with my story how do you feel about constellations Hmm. I feel very yeah it's it's awe-inspiring it's yeah were you one of those people who always said ah there's a big dipper or was able to name all the constellations not really hey i just found a new love for the stars now recently as i delved deeper into it and interviewing all of the scientists so can you tell me more so nasa actually named 21 new constellations recently new ones new ones really (laughs) well as you might know most visible constellations or star formations already have names so these constellations actually don't refer to stars that you and i can see but to gamma rays that's the highest energy light in the universe as you might know and even though we can't see them as humans there is lots and lots of gamma ray activity out there almost as many um, light sources as of stars that we can see. Gamma rays can come from the debris of supernova explosions, it could be pulses or supermassive black holes. So why are we naming ghost stars? I mean, we can't see them. (laughs) They are ghosts. Well, I've got to say it's a little bit of a publicity stunt of sorts since, as you say, we don't really need these names. It's not like children are going to look up and say, oh, here's so-and-so. But it is actually to make people aware of the 10th anniversary of their Fermi, so NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which is what we can thank for a decade worth of knowledge about gamma rays. So they're just celebrating it by name naming these constellations. Wow, that's very cool. What do they name them though? Did they go with old school names like some of the other stars and constellations that we know? No. So they stayed away from sort of Greek gods and those kind of things. They chose modern myths. That's what they call them. And I thought this is really cool because it basically means stories that you and I know and can relate to. And many of them very fittingly have a relation to gamma rays. So there's one named after the comic book character, the Hulk. Because if you know, if you like comic books, you'll know that Dr. Bruce Banner's experiments in the story um, have to do with gamma rays and they go wrong and he turns into the Hulk. So they named one after the Hulk. Then there's also one uh, that's named after Thor's hammer. And, um, and and that constellation is all about how terrestrial gamma rays actually um, are associated with lightning from from thunderstorms on Earth. So Thor's hammer is said to create lightning, so they made that connection. There's also a Godzilla one, and one named after the TARDIS from Doctor Who, as well as the Starship Enterprise constellation. So if you are a big nerd or geek, if you love your pop culture, there's lots to connect with, uh, connect with here. And you can learn about gamma rays at the same time. Wow, this is really interesting, uh, Elna, because it's a good way to also get uh, a lot of young people interested in the stars or the constellations, as you've put it. And yeah, and I like the fact that they are incorporating these myths and, you know, things that people can actually relate to. Mm. So if this gets you excited, but you know you can't go out into the night sky and see these things, there is a resource where you can explore all of these constellations and um, hear a little bit about where the names came from. Um, There is an interactive map up um, on the internet. You can go and Google it. We'll also try to pop it on our social media where you can play around with it a little bit. But there we go. Two science news stories to kick off the show from space. But after the break, we get down to Earth, in fact under the Earth, talking about Elon Musk's Hyperloop. Voice of Witz has signed a code of conduct that is enforced by the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Under the code, we are committed to broadcasting news that is accurate, comment that is fair, and programming that is not harmful to children. 
does not amount to hate speech and contains no gratuitous violence or explicit sex. If you think we are not living up to the code, you may inform the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Direct any complaints in writing to BCCSA, PO Box 412365, Craig Hall 2024, or send a fax to 011-325-5376 or an email to bccsa at nabsa.co.za. For more information, please visit www.bccsa.co.za. Welcome back to the Science Inside. Today we are talking about the Hyperloop. If you know who Elon Musk is, you know that he usually has some pretty big ideas about things that could work. He has many critics, many loyal fans, and the Hyperloop is just his newest idea that will be launching soon in Los Angeles, the first sort of test tubes. It's a relatively innovative way of transport that's going to um, be speeding at, uh, you know, we're talking 250 kilometers an hour. Crazy stuff. That is if it works. So here on the Science Inside, of course, we want to know if it does and how. So with me, I have Dr. Jeffrey Beck from the physics department at Wits University to talk a little bit about this. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's great to chat to you about this, and uh, maybe let's let's kick it off just with your initial impressions when you hear of the Hyperloop and the plans around it. Are you enthusiastic? Are you positive? Um, so the technology behind it is very interesting and the science associated, but it's low-capacity transport, and that doesn't really seem like the future. Oh, so uh, very much the idea of only the elite? Yes, I, I think I think so, yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of CEOs who would love to uh, zoom across America in a few hours, but what about the rest of us? I very, very much understand you. So let's get into the science of it. How does this train-like system, the Hyperloop, how does it work as far as you understand? Right. So um, the way, the general principle behind the Hyperloop is that you have uh, one main problem in high-speed rail, um, and that is friction. So you have friction between the train itself and the tracks, and air friction, because you're pushing against a relatively large air cushion as you go faster and faster. Mm. So the Hyperloop is an, uh, tries to overcome both of these uh, forms of friction by having um, essentially a small train pod that floats above the track and um, is propelled through a vacuum tube. So it doesn't meet either kinds of either of those two forms of friction. Okay, so we have our little train-like um, vehicle in the tube. Mm-hmm. How is it propelled forward, and where do magnets come into this? Right. So um, the way you propel, uh, so um, at least with certain system, of certain systems, you can propel it and levitate it at the, with the same principles. So the idea is you have, say, fixed magnets on the train itself. They can be superconducting, or they can just be very powerful, uh, normal bar magnets. And then what you have in the, in the tube that it's moving through, you have large coils of wire. So what the permanent magnet does is that it induces a current to flow in the coils of wire as it passes by them. That current produces its own magnetic field. And then the interactions between the train's magnetic field and the magnetic field's been created in the track lift it up and propel it forwards. Mm. Am I uh, completely wrong on this? Um, if I if I understand it correctly, can I imagine it as a magnetic force that sort of jumps forward or makes the train um, propels the train forward by um, by attracting it just a little bit further and further along? Yes. So there's a in reality there's a sort of a complex interplay of attraction and repulsion going on that keeps it moving forward. Okay, so if you out there are imagining two big magnets and the train sort of zooms from one side to the other, that is thankfully not what happens, <laughs> especially because, and I think this gets to one of the automatic concerns that comes to mind, that wouldn't be very good for human bodies. So even though the Hyperloop is said to technically, hypothetically, be able to move at speeds of over, over a thousand kilometers, 
I don't think any of us would like to do that just physically. Do you know anything about um, the possible effect on the human body? So, um, the, at least in terms of the speeds, the problems would be during acceleration and deceleration. So you could, ex uh, and of course through a curve, you can you could end up experiencing uh, at least half a g worth of force in that process, which is considerably more than you experience when you take off in an aeroplane. Hmm. And and do we know what kind of effects this can have over, um, you know, years and years of using this kind of technology? Uh, so. I'm not actually sure about that. Um, so we'd probably have some knowledge of it from, uh, at least from uh, long trajectory studies of people who've been to the International Space Station, so professional astronauts. Hmm. Um, I think it's. I don't think it's, it would have long-term impacts. It would just be a question of how comfortable it would be. Right, but magnets, levitation, all of that from a physics perspective is, I mean, is, is pretty safe. We're um, exposed to those kind of things every day. Uh, to a degree, yes, but we're talking quite a lot larger magnetic fields than most people would be exposed to. So even though Elon Musk is, um, is in the spotlight, this Hyperloop technology or uh, maglev trains, magnetic levitation trains, there's been a lot of different variations of this system and um, some of them have worked, some of them haven't. We haven't really seen anything fully functional. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that evolution? Right. So um, maglev trains have been a at least a big idea um, ever since we've uh, had any kind of practical application for superconductors. Um, but it's not entirely true that we don't have any working examples. China does, in fact, have an existing maglev train. And how would the Hyperloop be, be different to the Chinese version then? Um, so the, hyper, the principal difference between them would be that the Hyperloop uh, is a low-capacity transport, but it, ha it moves through a vacuum tube rather than just um, along, uh, along a magnetized rail. Hmm. So do you think there's any feasibility for, um, for the Hyperloop? And I'm, I'm talking now not just uh, about the social economic um, sphere, but just infrastructure-wise, having these big magnets, all of that from from sort of technical perspective. How feasible is this as a worldwide possible norm in transport, especially here in South Africa? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, so it would obviously require a lot of infrastructure investment to get to get something like that established. Um, so that is one of the major concerns uh, and principally why the only, um, the only real practical projects going on with that at the moment are targeting America or, or Western Europe. Mm, because it would just be too, too difficult um, to do in a place like South Africa, at least right now, I imagine. Uh, or, uh, poss uh, possibly, it can also just be a case of demand. Hmm. Not to mention integrating it in the existing <laughs> transport system, of course. Yes, yes, uh, that that is a that is a problem. Um, and to some degree, they look at building uh, the the, the tunnels raised up on sort of pylons, which can. Uh, mitigate that difficulty. Mm. So is there something else from the field of, of physics that uh, you might, just to end off, that you might feel is a untapped opportunity or um, something that could be applied to transport and, and, and make it better in the future that perhaps scientists and people like Elon Musk should focus on next? Oh, um, that's a good uh, good question. I'm not sure if I have a good answer to it, though. Um, so, I think the the major hope is is more applications of superconductivity. As a lot of research goes into producing superconducting magnets that work at higher temperatures, uh, which of course makes it much more economical. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> So we'll have to see uh, what the future holds. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Beck, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Science Inside. Thanks very much for having me on. You are still on The Science Inside, and after the break, we go to our unscience. 
Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Here on the show, we love to not just look at the serious science, but take a few minutes in the middle of the show to have a bit of um, a strange conversation when it comes to science. It's called Unscience, and we look at some research that seems strange or funny on the surface of it. Today's uh, Unscience is produced by Harmony Malefi and has music from Sound Bible and Ben Sound. It does come from Science Daily, and We'll be chatting about it with my producer, Bridget LePere. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Okay, Bridget, what do you have for us today? We are ready to be amazed and possibly grossed out. You never know what's going to happen with unscience. No, it's nothing like that. It's very, uh, something very, um, yeah, selfish, if I may say. Selfish? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) We (laughs) We are finding out why certain birds help other birds for selfish reasons. So... Elna, do you have any younger siblings that you may have raised in your family? No, I am not uh, very good with children, <laughs> unfortunately. So, but the kids in my life, I do try. I try a little bit, but I was never that like mothering older sister. Yay! Okay, maybe you may want <laughs> to hear this. Okay, it is commonly believed that birds stay at home to raise their young their young siblings and allow them to pass down their genes to them. However, a new study has revealed that actually these birds do this for their own benefit. Okay, it sounds like they're helping other birds. Why is this for their own benefit? This type of behavior will increase their chances of getting their mates and reproducing in the future. So according to Charlie Cornwallis, a biologist at the Lund University, this is true because such behavior can make them uh, make getting their breeding mates within their population. And it is comparable to winning a reproductive advantage over others. It does make some sense because if they have experience with sort of taking care of other birds, that would obviously translate into some kind of advantage when it comes to reproducing, if it is the kind of species where, you know, the birds take care of their young, of course. But that means that when they are helping other birds, they just want, it's it's just a response for the future around mating. Well, not really entirely. You thinking about it like a human being, not really like a <laughs> not bird. A bird. <laughs> yeah, I need to get my bird, bird your brain. bird brain going. <laughs> so these birds can pass on their genes indirectly to the younger ones. This also gives them a fitness advantage in that their genes can be transmitted further to other generations. But if the individuals helped so as to pass on their genes to the new generation, there are no phenotypic differences that can be observed in the young ones then it is likely that there is another thing driving them to do so the thing with these studies for me always and you touched on it just now is that it's easy to sort of personify these animals and think about them the way we would think about humans but in the end you don't really know why these things are happening it's probably not a well thought through psychological process of the bird so how was this study even conducted in such a way that that the researchers felt they could prove this Well, researchers from the Lund University have used the natural variation to assess how much male and female birds are likely to help raise their young ones. From the comparison of the two sexes, which is likely to raise the young, one appears to breed more within their populations at later stages. It was found that the sex which was more likely to breed seems to have invested more in helping raise the the young ones. So are you saying it seems that these birds wouldn't help if it wasn't, you know, just innocently they wouldn't help? 
well, some can still help instantly, but there can be some which are on the lookout for themselves. You know, for instance, they may want to receive help raising their own offspring in the future and also may want to become part of a larger social group as individuals who do not help can be thrown out of this group. So it's sort of, a, you know, a peer pressure thing going on, <laughs> not wanting to be left out. You know, FOMO, okay. maybe it exists among the bird populations. <laughs> and this clearly shows that individuals may help for various reasons and not limited only to ensuring the success of their family members. Well, there is, there is that uh, saying, killing two birds with one stone. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> so they're doing both at the same time. That's all I mean. But that pun is an ugly one, <laughs> the story. Because being helpful allows them to share their genes and also makes them appear selfless, thus being uh, perceived as attractive to the opposite sex. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This whole story is a bit funny to me because I I really don't think that birds think through being helpful the way that a human does. Uh, I don't think so either. But I guess this is what they might they may have hoped to achieve, and this is changing societal views of being helpful. As for one, you have already set your mind to change. Have you set your mind to change your helpfulness through the story, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, maybe help birds because they <laughs> seem quite confused about themselves. <laughs> maybe that's who I would help. That was our unusual, unlikely, unscience. Stay with us after the break. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. The major news event, at least if you're a huge Elon Musk fan, this week is around the Hyperloop, a new form of transportation that, if it works, is going to change many things. But you know what? You and I don't live in the future. We live right here. And you know what? Transport can be quite a mess, whether it's the bus or taxis, Uber, cars on the roads. Anybody who's been in Johannesburg traffic knows that it is not the ideal. But you know what? I wanted to understand how things are planned and maybe how it could be a bit better. So we have... Roger Behrens with us on the line. He is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of Cape Town. He's the director of the Center for Transport Studies and previously worked for the Urban Problems Research Unit. So he is very well placed to have this conversation with us. Roger, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Good evening and thank you for having me. So as I mentioned there is so much happening in South Africa's transport system that an ordinary person on the street might sometimes look at it and think, how is this all planned? And just to elaborate on that, I would love to know, are there specific principles and sort of a macro South African or Johannesburg or Cape Town view of planning this? Or do transport systems just organically evolve with one street being built after the next? Right. So we do have uh, national uh, legislation that requires planning authorities in our various cities and towns to produce what are called integrated transport plans and uh, the legislation uh, stipulates what the content of these plans should be so they'll say they need to include some kind of uh, strategy for improving the public transport system there should be some plan with respect to how the road infrastructure will be developed over the next uh, uh, five to twenty years so we've got a whole lot of of um, uh, requirements in legislation but one of the things that's a real problem for us and what you were alluding to in the in the in the introduction to this was that the is that the um the different modes of transport the taxis the, the rail services the the buses and so on are very often uh, the responsibility of different uh, spheres of government um 
And so consequently, while the municipalities might put in place a plan for how they would like their transport system to develop, um, there isn't necessarily the, the, the various planning authorities around budget allocation and so on at that uh, municipal sphere of governments. And hence, very often, the, the, the planning is somewhat fragmented. In terms of your, your your question about what are the macro principles involved, yeah, there are sort of technical processes that transport planners will apply that try to forecast what demand is going to be in the future and make sure the supply meets that. But our Act and our various white papers give us some principles, particularly in the post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, we have requirements to put public transport first, to make transport systems universally accessible and so on and so forth. Okay, so one of my concerns when I look at this is that there are, as I mentioned, so many different players uh, from your Ubers to your taxis to your private cars and, and trains. And you were talking about integrated transport plans, but how integrated is it really? Well, for the, for the reasons that I've, that I've begun to, to flesh out, often they're not very well integrated at all. So for anybody who's had the privilege to, to travel to some of the, um, the large uh, mega cities of, of, of the global north, um, will have been to cities like New York and London and Paris and found it quite common for um, the fare structures and the ticketing systems of the public transport system as a whole to be integrated. So you will buy a Oyster card in London or whatever it is, and it will enable you to, to, to move between buses and trains and, and use a, a, a consistent uh, fare structure. Very often the, the, the buses and the, and the trains have got a similar livery that their timetables are integrated. And those kinds of features we don't yet have in our South African uh, public transport systems. Um, and there are instances where we can start to get a sense of, of, of what economists call or the benefits of economies of scope, where you have one agency responsible for the different uh, components of the system. And, and I guess I, I don't know the how train system particularly well, but I understand that you have uh, how train buses and indeed uh, many buses that are now liveried within the how train uh, brand and they have a, a, a system of fare collection and scheduling that, that integrates well with, with the trains. What we need to be able to do is to create that kind of, of uh, uh, integration but across the entire city transport system. Hmm. And a very large part of the South African transport system is, of course, minibus taxis, which is one of the the main focuses of, of your research in the past few years. I'd love to hear a bit more about the complexities around how minibus taxis are planned for or not so, how they're integrated or not so. What's happening there? Sure. So um, I need to go back a, a, about a decade or so to 2007 when our National Department of Transport produced something called the Public Transport Strategy, which um, was at a moment in time, we were three or four years uh, from the FIFA World Cup. We had all sorts of, of um, uh, commitments to provide transport services associated with hosting the, the, the World Cup. And there was a, a sort of a realization amongst policymakers that our public transport systems hadn't really progressed much uh, since 1994. And in, in fact, in many instances, they, they, they might have even have got worse. So there was this focused policy attention and drive to to invest in our, 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 our public transport system improvements. And an idea um, that was um, particularly influential at the time was uh, bus rapid transit. Um, uh, about six or so years previously, Bogota in Colombia had launched a very successful bus rapid transit system. So we were looking at, a, at, a, at another country in the global south at a success story, and we were hoping that we could um, transport that uh, technology to our uh, South African cities. Um, and 
the the vision at the time was that we would bring in these uh, BRT services um, and over a period of about uh, 14 or so years up until 2020, um, uh, we would um, uh, have a comprehensive uh, BRT or rail network that covered our cities and the existing uh, incumbent minibus taxi operators would be incorporated into new operating companies that could either provide uh, the, the bus services, be they trunk or feeder services, or perhaps other elements of, of the BRT system, uh, station management, cleaning contracts, and so on and so forth. Um, and the view at the time was that, isn't, in essence, the, the minibus taxi industry was um, going to be replaced. So we didn't really need to invest a hell of a lot of energy and time in thinking about what role they should play in an improved public transport system. And if we fast forward then uh, uh, to the present, we now recognize that it's not going to be possible for us to 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 eradicate the minibus taxi industry. It's going to stay. And we've got to think about ways of incorporating the, uh, the, the services that are provided by this industry into an integrated complementary system where they're not in destructive uh, competition. So a lot of the work that we've been doing in, in my center is looking at places around the world where you have what we're calling a hybrid system, where you have both the, if you like, the informal and the formal public transport services coexisting. And we're looking for examples of where um, this coexistence is complementary and, and not destruct, destructive. So a lot of our work is focused on the notion that uh, minibus taxis, given their size um, uh, and their nature, are, are, are very demand responsive and, and they're very well suited to providing shorter distance uh, type services, um, whereas the longer distance services on the high volume corridors are better to, suited to, to mass transit options like BRT and rail. Mm. So the kind of ideas that we're exploring are around the, 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 the taxis filling a niche uh, where they're connecting communities to the larger trunk-type services. But there are other ideas as well, like peak lopping and so on and so forth. That makes a lot of sense to put each model, each mode of transport there where it functions the best and, and make it the best at that as opposed to, as you were saying, destructive competition. And when you mentioned that, well, my brain, uh, especially as somebody who regularly uses the car train services and is very familiar with the problems we've had in the past with Uber drivers being attacked, my brain immediately thinks of the Uber and um, other e-hailing systems when it comes to destructive competition. So what I would love for you to just explain to us is, can you use the example of e-hailing services as perhaps a mini case study of how a, a new player enters the market and how it can be treated in good and not so good ways? Yeah, look, I think that's an excellent question. Um, uh, I believe earlier you've been talking about hyperloops and maglev trains and so on, and I, I suspect that those kinds of bright and shiny technologies are going to be uh, implemented in other parts of the world well before they reach our shores. And, and the, the kinds of new technologies and disruptive technologies that our transport systems are going to experience are exactly these kinds of things, uh, e-hailing, e-mobility, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and you've correctly pointed out that our, our our response to these uh, new technologies so far hasn't been great. Um, you know, economists would would hope that as a new disruptive technology enters the marketplace and it has this direct disruptive effect, the incumbent um, uh, service providers in the market would then learn from this and begin to adjust their service to make it more... Um, uh, more, more competitive, you know, maybe change their price points um, so that they can compete better. 
the, the sort of the default reaction in our, in our cities has been to try and remove the the the, the new uh, uh, innovator from the market, and and you've mentioned already Uber, but it doesn't have to be like that, and there are. Um, quite encouraging uh, signs uh, elsewhere in Africa of 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 e-hailing starting to be incorporated into um, the equivalents in other parts of the world uh, of our money bus taxis called Daladalas or Matatus um, in, in in East Africa for instance Danfos in, in West Africa um, where um, the, uh, the the benefits of e-hailing are starting to be incorporated in this more unscheduled uh, informal means of of, um, of of public transport, and I think there's real space for 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 innovation in that area. Mm, I think I was reading about um, Kigali in, in Rwanda, if I'm not mistaken, when e-hailing service was taking off, where you hop on the back of somebody's motorbike, which is the most typical form of transport there anyway, which I thought was such a good example of how a new technology and an existing system can merge together to work better. Yeah, and there's other examples. I think I've heard of that Kigali example as well. There's, there's another one, I think it's in, in, in Kenya called Safe Border, which is very much on the same basis. I think it has been the, the motorcycle taxis, the border border, that have, that have led the, um, uh, the innovation, but there are some minibuses um, that are following suit as well. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking to Professor Roger Behrens um, uh, at UCT about transport systems. He's in the Department of Civil Engineering. And it's been so interesting to get a little bit of an insight into how our cities are built and uh, how the transport systems grow and can integrate. It's definitely left me with hope as new systems evolve, whether that's new e-hailing, hopping on the back of somebody's motorbike, whether it's Renting personal cars, or even the Hyperloop. <laughs> You're still on the science inside. This is the science inside with Elna. It's been a good show here on the science inside. I've definitely learned a thing or two about transport systems and the Hyperloop. Can't wait to see if Elon Musk and the team pulls it off in the end of December this year. I would love to take a ride on the Hyperloop, but maybe I will let somebody else go first because I'm not so sure about those uh, those health concerns for now. We'll have to see. A big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Roger Behrens and Jeffrey Beck. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Lebo Madisha, Gloria Mabuza and Harmony Malefi. Tech by Kulana Sahame. The podcast, if you've missed it, is on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science or the Science Inside on iTunes. You can find us on social media at VowFM on Facebook and Twitter. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Alna Schutz and I will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.